0: This is a recording of Textual Criticism in the Book of Moses, a response to Colby Townsend's Returning to the Sources, Part 1 of 2, published in Interpreter, Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, read by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw. Abstract Textual criticism tries by a variety of methods to understand the original or best wording of a document that may exist in multiple conflicting versions or where the manuscripts are confusing or difficult to read. The present article, part one of a two part series by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw and Ryan Dolly, commends Rock Colby Townsend's efforts to raise awareness of the importance of textual criticism, while differing on some interpretations. Among the differences discussed is the question of whether it is better to read Moses 7:28 as it was dictated in the Old Testament 1 version of the Joseph Smith Translation Manuscript, OT1, that God wept, or rather to read it as it was later revised in the Old Testament 2 version, OT2, that, quote, Enoch wept. Far from being an obscure technical detail, the juxtaposition of the two versions of this verse raises general questions as to whether readings based on the latest revisions of Latter-day Saint scripture manuscripts should always take priority over the original dictations. A dialogue with Colby Townsend and Charles Harrell on rich issues of theological and historical relevance demonstrates the potential impact of the different answers to such questions by different scholars. In a separate discussion that highlights the potential significance of handwriting analysis to textual criticism, Bradshaw and Dolly respond to Townsend's arguments that the spelling difference between the names Mahuja and Mahija in the Book of Moses may be due to a transcription error. In a recent article, Colby Townsend commendably pointed the attention of his readers to the importance of embracing textual criticism as a key element of methodology for studying Latter-day Saint documents. He rightfully argues that if important textual sources are missing, mistranscribed, or misunderstood, no amount of subsequent analysis can fully compensate for what may have been lost in the mishandling of this essential prerequisite. Although Townsend's examples range over several topics in Latter-day Saint history and scripture, our response focuses specifically on topics relevant to the Book of Moses. In the present article, Part 1, we respond to material in his article that bears on three questions. The first is a general question, and the last two respond to specific examples of textual criticism that Townsend raised in his article. 1. What is the status of textual criticism on the Book of Moses as a whole? 2. Who wept for the wicked in Moses 7.28? And 3. Do the original manuscripts of the Book of Moses indicate that Mahuja and Mahaja are separate names? In part two, we will continue the discussion of the Book of Moses' names, Mahuja and Mahajah, and the similar names, Mahujael in Genesis 4.18, and Mahawe in the pseudepigraphal Book of Giants. Beyond the particulars of the response to Townsend's paper, we hope this discussion will contribute to a better appreciation of the role and importance of textual criticism in understanding later day Saint Scripture. 1. What is the status of textual criticism on the Book of Moses? Compared to other works of Latter-day Saint scripture, the study of the text of the Book of Moses has accelerated more slowly. We owe great thanks to early pioneers such as Robert J. Matthews and Richard P. Howard, as well as to more recent scholarship by Kent P. Jackson, Scott Fallring, and other associates we discuss in more detail below. However, as Townsend points out, there is additional work to be done. Townsend gives good examples of where failure to use primary sources, and to interpret them judiciously, can lead to erroneous conclusions. He shows how Michael Homer overlooked a phrase that was key to his argument because of differences in the ordering of the text in the 1851 publication of selections from the Book of Moses. He also demonstrates problems with Thomas Wayment's view that the Old Testament 1 manuscript of Moses 1 is a copy rather than an original dictation, based in part on Weyman's misreadings of Moses 1. These misreadings occurred despite the fact that Wayment, unlike Homer, had access to recent transcriptions of OT1 and high-resolution images of it as well. We agree with Townsend's conclusions, and Bradshaw expands upon these and other issues relating to Wayment's explanations for the genesis of Joseph Smith's Bible translation in a separate review of his chapter. Also signaling the importance of textual criticism, Bradshaw's favorably reviewed select chapters of Samuel Brown's book on Joseph Smith's translations, revelations, and temple teachings, while signaling his omission of important links between the Book of Moses and the temple. What documents are currently available for the textual study of the Book of Moses? On page 70, Townsend begins his discussion of the Book of Moses as follows. Some may assume that the LDS book, Pearl of Great Price, an important part of the Latter-day Saint canonical works, has received thorough treatment, but this assumption only applies to the Book of Abraham, end of quote of Townsend. After having encountered this statement, readers may think scholarly treatment of the Book of Moses has been deficient, but Townsend's comment has more to do with completeness than quality. His primary concern is the need for more textual criticism of books in the Pearl of Great Price, going beyond documentary editing. According to Kent P. Jackson, the Joseph Smith Translation, or JST, manuscripts, of which the Book of Moses is a part, have already received, quote, a higher level of redundant scrutiny than is the norm in documentary editing, end of quote. Although Townsend cites Jackson's 2005 book, The Book of Moses and the Joseph Smith Translation, his article does not give a description of its contents because... While it is related to the issues he describes in his article, it does not provide a critical text of the sort he is calling for. Unfortunately, and more to Townsend's point, the broader field of Latter-day Saint studies has not paid the kind of attention to Jackson's book that it deserves. The goal of Jackson's 2005 book was to answer two questions. What was Joseph Smith's intended text? And how did we get from that to the current text? It explains the major developments of the Book of Moses from the original manuscript in OT1 to the 1981 canonical edition. The book contains a chapter on the historical text that reproduces the text of OT2 along with a text-critical apparatus that focuses on a comparison of OT2 to OT1, EMS, 1835-LF, 1843-TS, 1851, C.M., 1867, I.V., 1878, 1879, 1888, 1902, 1921, and 1981, as well as to early printings of the Book of Moses that are not part of the direct lineage of today's text. End of quote. Additionally, a chapter entitled Manuscript Text brings the OT1 and OT2 manuscripts together into a single place, quote, with the words as the prophet left them, in other words, following the latest revisions made in his lifetime, but with grammar, spelling, capitalization, and punctuation standardized. In addition, high-definition images of these JST manuscript pages have been available since the inexpensive publication of the Joseph Smith Translations of the Bible Electronic Library in 2011. The transcriptions of the JST documents created by Follering, Jackson, and Matthews were used to help create the transcription now found on the Joseph Smith paper's website. The JSTEL allows readers to scrutinize every word and letter of their transcriptions. Gratefully, we've been able to rely on the JSTEL for all the JST manuscript images used in the figures of the present article. What specific concerns does Townsend Townsend raise about document transcription? With respect to the Jackson and Follering's transcriptions of the manuscripts of the Joseph Smith translation, Townsend summarized his assessment as follows, quote, My previous copyists that have transmitted the text of the Book of Moses, Jackson and Follering have made errors in their transcription. This implies that caution should be used when utilizing the printed and electronic transcripts of Smith's Bible revision, and new publications should improve upon the significant previous work of these scholars, end of quote from Townsend. Although, as with any similar work of scholarship, it is always possible that a given instance of transcription may be called into question in the future. The warning about transcription errors raised above is not currently well supported by examples. Apart from questions that Townsend raises about the possibility of transcription errors in Emma's handwriting, discussed later below, Townsend draws attention to only one other transcription error, a missing line in a journal publication that Jackson and Fallering made of Old Testament Manuscript 3, an early lateral private copy made by John Whitmer. However, Jackson has clarified that this was not, as Townsend characterizes it, a transcription error, quote, silently added in the CD-ROM ed- edition of OT3, end of quote, but rather an accidental deletion by the journal's typesetter of a line contained in the manuscript submitted for publication. Townsend has told us he is engaged in the process of locating and correcting other possible errors in the hopes that scholars will join him in creating and using new documentary editions of the manuscripts as well as text-critical single-volume edition. According to Townsend, what else remains to be done? Going beyond Townsend's concerns about the accuracy of current transcriptions, subsequent discussion with him has clarified his views of what else remains to be done. He intends to make a complete texturing-critical study of all handwritten manuscripts, including the full text as well as quotations for parts of it, and printed editions. At present, he has identified 45 relevant sources dating from 1828 to 1902, including lateral sources not part of the lineage of the current text. Similar to Jackson, his hope is to be able to create a text that answer the, answers the question, what was the text in 1833 that Smith was preparing for publication? and also provide transcriptions of the other unpublished manuscripts and printed editions that are key to understanding the Book of Moses at different times in early Mormon history. In the end, Townsend wants to provide multiple volumes, a documentary edition of all 45 manuscripts and printed sources, plus a separate volume that provides a critical text with text-critical apparatus. This will assist historians who study the first 70 years of Latter-day Saint history by providing the text of the Book of Moses in the form that members of the several branches of the Restoration Movement might all feel comfortable in turning to for their understanding of the text. Once Townsend demonstrates that he has mustered significant evidence beyond what he has offered to date to support his warning that, quote, caution should be used when utilizing the transcript of Smith's Bible revision, end of quote, The question he raises about the degree of accuracy of existing transcriptions can be taken up more fully by scholars. In the meantime, however, with respect to completeness of the textual record, we applaud Townsend's ongoing project to provide a new documentary edition and critical text that will include all known manuscripts of the Book of Moses, whether they are in a lineal or lateral relationship to the current canonical version. Now we move on to some more specific questions. The issue Townsend raises here provide examples of the kinds of discussions of text-critical questions that should be taking place, and we're grateful for the willingness of Townsend and Charles Harrell to engage with us in a friendly dialogue about them. 2. Who wept for the wicked in Moses 7:28? The God of heaven wept, OT1, versus Enoch wept, OT2. The first observations that Townsend makes relating to the Enoch chapters of the book of Moses are found on pages 77 through 79. They concern what now constitutes Moses 7.28-29 in the current Latter-day Saint version of the book of Moses. The gist of his observation has to do with the prophet's original dictation of the verse in Old Testament Manuscript 1, or OT1, where God wept. The God of heaven looked upon the residue of the people, and he wept. And Enoch bore record of it, saying, How is it the heavens weep, and shed forth her tears as the rain upon the mountains? And Enoch said unto the heavens, how is it that thou canst weep, seeing thou art holy from all eternity to all eternity? End of quote. The subsequent revision on Old Testament manuscript 2, or OT2, changes the text so that it states that Enoch wept rather than God. Enoch looked upon the residue of the people and wept. And he beheld, and lo, the heavens wept also, and shed forth their tears upon the mountains. And Enoch said unto the heavens, How is it thou canst weep? seeing that thou art holy from all eternity to all eternity. For reasons that have been outlined elsewhere, the OT 1 version of Moses 7, which includes the version of the text stating that God wept, is the one retained in the current canonical version of the book of Moses, rather than the later OT 2. In the discussion below, we'll examine the following questions. How did Terrell Gibbons describe the weeping of Moses 7.28? Why did Townsend and Harrell Conclude that Gibbons did not take the OT2 revision of Moses 728 seriously enough. Does God express only anger and wrath in Moses 7 to the exclusion of any display of sorrow and sadness? Should we trust OT2 more than OT1? How did Terrell Gibbons describe the weeping of Moses 728? Of course, Townsend's observation about this revision is not new, since this change has been previously discussed in Robert J. Matthews' landmark 1975 publication, in the 2004 publication of the Transcription of the Complete Manuscripts of Joseph Smith Translation, in Kent Jackson's careful 2005 study of the Book of Moses Manuscripts, in Richard Draper, Kent Brown, and Michael Rhodes' verse-by-verse commentary on the Pearl of Great Price, in Thomas Wayment's helpful side-by-side comparison of the King James Bible and the JST and in Jeffrey M. Bradshaw and David J. Larson's 2014 commentary, for which Townsend was a contributor. What is at issue for Townsend is not whether or not the current state of textual scholarship has properly documented and drawn attention to this textual concern, but rather if specific treatments of this passage, whether found in publications intended for scholarly or popular audiences, have failed to properly document, analyze, and especially engage with the available text-critical information. Townsend was surprised and concerned that a scholar such as Terrell Givens, who has written extensively about this passage, was apparently not aware the verse was revised after its initial dictation until Townsend pointed it out to him. To Townsend, this suggests that if better text-critical resources were available and more routinely used, these kinds of oversights would happen less often. Within his article, Townsend specifically cites writings by Eugene England and Terrell Givens, These authors have been influential in sensitizing Latter-day Saints to the significant difference between the Latter-day Saint concept of a God who is capable of feeling sorrow and the untouchable God of most traditional Christian creeds, with important exceptions. Given Townsend acknowledges the mention of this textual change in Givens' Enoch-related publication in 2019, it seems appropriate to explore why Townsend still believes that Givens fails to appreciate the details of the issue. First, what did Givens actually say? Although his explanation of the revision of Moses 7.28 does not extend as far to include the full textual history of the verse, as Townsend does in his own article, Gibbon's brief summary is nevertheless concise and eloquent in depicting both the theological implications of the verse and the historical essentials of its revision, especially in consideration of the wide audience of readers he evidently hoped to reach with his book. Quote, Enoch is most struck by God's unanticipated response to a world veiled in darkness. Quote, and it came to pass that the God of heaven looked upon the residue of the people, and he wept, and Enoch bore record of it. End of quote. Smith then revised the text to indicate that Enoch is in the scene weeping with God, and is surprised when he sees God joining in his grief. Quote, and behold, and lo, the heavens wept also, and shed forth their tears as the rain upon the mountains. End of quote. Though heaven stands in here for God in poetic metonymy, it is clearly God who weeps, and who personally responds to Enoch's twice-expressed amazement, how is it thou canst weep? End of quote from Givens. Why did Townsend and Harrell conclude that Givens did not take OT2 revision of Moses 728 seriously enough? Why did Townsend feel that Givens failed to take the OT2 revision seriously enough in his most recent publication on the subject? Below we outline and respond to Townsend's concern in this regard. In addition, the brief remarks from Townsend on the subject are supplemented by a summary of additional concerns generously contributed in a personal note from Charles Harrell, cited with his permission and later revised by him in light of our initial response in a previous draft. First, a summary of Townsend's remarks on the subject. Townsend views Joseph Smith as realizing, quote, that there were some difficulties in making sense of the OT1 dictation of this verse. In particular, the use of the masculine pronoun for both God and Enoch, as well as the fact that God is made synonymous with the female divine heavens. Among other things, the prophets quote, significant revisions in OT2, the feminine heavens lose their pronoun for a neutral pronoun, there. This alteration removes the gendered pronoun that previously defined the heavens. While we don't have any a priori objection to the possibility that the heavens might have been seen as feminine in its original dictation in OT 1, we are not satisfied that the presence of the possessive her in OT 1 constitutes unambiguous evidence of that possibility. It seems to us that there are equally plausible options. For example, the OT 1 scribe could have simply misheard her instead of the similarly sounding there. Or perhaps the later revision was nothing more than a simple mechanical fix to make the possessive consistent with a plural noun, heavens. To place too much confidence in the idea that the her is a reliable indication, fraught with weighty interpretive import, that the heavens were feminine, or going further that there were significant semantic implications of the change from her to there, seems premature based on extant evidence. In any event, it should also be noted that the change from, quote, the feminine heavens to the, quote, neutered heavens, was not successful in effecting a full resolution of the set of sense-making difficulties that Townsend has proposed. This is because the solution to the supposed gender-related problem of her did not fix the remaining inconsistency between the OT2's resulting plural possessive there and the singular pronoun used almost immediately thereafter in Enoch's question. Quote, How is it that thou canst weep? More on this seeming inconsistency below. Of course, the most important implication of this change in the pronoun for the heavens for Townsend is that it changes the meaning of the text by shifting the action of weeping from God to Enoch. However, even if one were to grant that the revision in the verse was made intentionally to put the focus on Enoch rather than God in this instance, something we see as unlikely, it seems to us that the effect of this change on the passage as a whole would be quite minimal. For reason we will argue more fully below, we find God's predominant mood throughout the present passage is that of sorrow for the unrepentant wicked. Though God argues his grievances passionately and demonstrates no second thoughts about what he was sadly compelled to do in light of the people's recalcitrance, his ultimate theme is compassion and hope that his wayward children will accept the proffered atonement made on their behalf. As David Bakavoy has written about the way the passage combines divine expressions of both grievance and mercy, quote, In the book of Moses, God appears as he does in the Hebrew Bible as a deity possessing immense power. But he is also a God who loves to the extent that human sinfulness causes him to experience intense sadness, to the point of shedding tears. He is a God who cares so passionately about his work and glory to bring to pass human immortality and eternal life that he experiences human emotions when his creations sin. However, in the book of Moses, God is not simply a kind, sympathetic deity. His Old Testament-like propensity toward emotion, combined with immense power, appears in the book of Moses through his tearful decision to annihilate almost all creation, End of quote. With respect to this citation, Townsend related to us that he made Bacavoy aware of the revised version of Moses 7.28 that had Enoch rather than God shedding tears late in the publication process, presumably too late to make use of this finding. This example corroborates Townsend's general point that even very well-informed scholars have not made adequate use of extant text-critical resources. On this issue, we are in complete agreement with Townsend. Although we do not know to what extent Bacavoy might have changed his text in light of later knowledge of the revision, what seems to have impressed him most in his published reading of the passage as a whole was the repeated evidence of God's deep love for humankind. Quote, "...human sinfulness causes him to experience intense sadness." He cares so passionately, end of quote. Though Bilk Bakavoy acknowledges that, quote, God is not simply a kind, sympathetic deity, he characterized God's determination to annihilate almost all creation as, quote, a tearful decision, not one either of unfeeling anger or repentance for his own actions. Going beyond Townsend's hypotheses about Joseph Smith's motivations for the OT2 revisions of the passage, Harrell turns his attention to, quote, those who maintain that the OT1 text is correct as it stands," of quote. While correct is too strong a word to use to describe our own views, we do have reasons to believe that the OT1 reading is superior overall to the OT2 reading. We have more to say later on on the question of whether OT1 or OT2 is the better reading, but in the meantime we will examine Harold's specific arguments that accepting the OT1 reading is pl- problematic at the outset. In each of the points below, Our responses will follow his bolded statements. Harrell, quote, Smith is crafting, and I don't mean to rule out inspiration, an ancient narrative using biblical language, but also grappling with his present theology. When I read Moses 7, I see an attempt to situate God on the side of the weeping with Enoch and the rest of his creations, but the composer isn't entirely clear about what it might mean for God to weep, especially given that the teaching of an embodied God was still more than a decade away. Can this supreme being weep like humans weep, with actual physical tears running down physical cheeks? I wonder if perhaps Smith didn't see a clear way for that scenario to fly, so he shifted the weeping to the heavens in the form of rain, which is a common Christian literary image." End of quote from Harold. We accept the commonly held view of church members that Joseph Smith had a clear understanding of the corporeality of God, the Father, since at least the time of the first vision though he seems to have been reluctant to teach that doctrine, and for that matter to share details about his first vision itself, in all its clarity and implications until later in his ministry. This reticence led to early statements from some church members that propounded various views to the contrary. Study of the translations, teachings, and revelations of Joseph Smith suggests that he sometimes knew much more than he taught publicly about certain matters that were considered sacred or that ran contrary to commonly received religious traditions. For example, in some cases, we know that the prophet deliberately delayed the publication of early temple-related revelations connected with his work on the JST until several years after he initially received them. Moreover, even after Joseph Smith was well along in the Bible translation process, he seems to have believed that God did not intend for him to publish the JST in his lifetime. For example, in writing to W. W. Phelps in 1832, he said, I would inform you that the Bible translation will not go from under my hand during my natural life for correction, revisal, or printing, and the will of the Lord be done. Although Joseph Smith eventually reversed his position and apparently made serious efforts to prepare the manuscript of the JST for publication, his own statement makes clear that initially he did not feel authorized to share publicly all he had produced and learned during the translation process, Indeed, a prohibition against indiscriminate sharing of some revelations, which parallels similar cautions found in the pseudepigrapha, pseudepigrapha, is explicit in the book of Moses when it says of one sacred portion of the account, Show these words not unto any except them that believe. Such admonitions are consistent with the remembrance of a statement by Joseph Smith that he intended to go back and rework some portions of the Bible translation to add in truths he was previously, quote, restrained from giving in plainness and fullness, end of quote. With specific reference to the question at hand, so far as we've been able to discover and and extend evidence, the supposition that Joseph Smith himself was, quote, grappling with his present theology, end of quote, about whether God the Father had a body, whether physical or spiritual, is based solely on inference from the fact of the OT2 revision of Moses 728 itself. Not only is this view currently lacking independent corroboration, it fails to allow for the argument that divine inspiration prompted the original dictation. Moreover, as we detail later on, there is complementary evidence that later substantive revisions in OT2 sometimes tended to run roughshod over important literary features integral to OT1. Such considerations make OT1, in our view, a superior reading to OT2. Harrell Quote, My greater concern is that those who choose to see God literally weeping in this account seem to want to bond it as a novel teaching, one that starkly contrasts with the teachings in Smith's day. This claim of exceptionalism seems entirely unwarranted in light of the literature which evidences a passable sympathetic God as one of the predominant teachings of the day. End of quote. Of course, we concur that to the degree that literature contemporary with Joseph Smith gives evidence of a, quote, passable, sympathetic God, end of quote, scholars should not overemphasize Latter-day Saint exceptionalism in this regard. However, detailed arguments and evidence countering the views of Givens and others who see Joseph Smith's teachings, translations, and revelations about the passability of God as primarily innovative rather than derivative has yet to be made. Harrell Focusing on a perceived inconsistency in verse 28 of OT 1, which has God looking on the residue of the people and weeping, Harold writes, quote, In OT 1, Enoch is reported to have looked or beheld a total of 19 times in the two visions he has shown. God, on the other hand, is never described in these visions as looking or beholding, except for the single instance in verse 28. In order to preserve the presenter-viewer relationship that exists throughout the rest of the narrative, Smith may have felt it necessary to change verse 28 in OT 2 to have God doing the looking and weeping, Enoch doing the looking and weeping rather than God. End of quote. Here we would begin by noting that the idea that the visionary sees the vision does not automatically exclude the idea that God is looking at the vision with him. For example, in Jewish, Islamic, and other ancient accounts whose narrative themes resemble Moses 7, the cosmic visions of the prophets are often described as a picture model, or likeness shown on a visionary screen. In other words, a representation projected on the backside of the heavenly veil. In such accounts as God and the visionary view this blueprint of eternity together, the prophet asks questions, and in answer God speaks while at the same time drawing attention to particular features of each scene. This is the very setting for the vision and dialogue with God in, for example, the Jewish book of 3rd Enoch and in Moses 1. Harold. Verses, quote, verses 37 and 40 refer to the whole heavens, even all the workmanship of mine hands, as doing the weeping. Assuming that the heavens does function as a metonym, why jump to the conclusion that it is a stand-in for God, and not all of his works, as the text states here? Finally, when used as a metonym in the OT, the heavens doesn't always refer to God, much less only to God. For example, in Psalm 89.5, which have the heavens praising God's work, The Net Bible explains the personified heavens here stand by metonymy for the angelic beings that surround God's heavenly throne. In Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. In other instances, the heavens are said by Ernest Wright and Frank Moore Cross to refer to the heavenly council. We concur with this well-expressed perspective. It seems reasonable to widen Given's suggestion that the reference to the heavens stands in for God in poetic metonymy to mean that the heavens ineluctably includes God as part of the heavens in poetic metonymy. Similarly to Doctrine and Covenants 76.26, we might take the heavens to refer to the inhabitants of the heavens. Heavens. Harold, quote, The assertion that the heavens is merely a metonym, stand-in for God, seems premature, and when examined in context is problematic. For example, in verses 37 and 40, God refers in the third person to the heavens weeping. To suggest that the heavens in these verses refers to God when God is the one referring to them (coughs) strikes me as both odd and obscurant. Why all this indirection? I'm not claiming that God couldn't or wouldn't address himself so indirectly, but I would like to see some discussion of this indirection and the lack of straight talk. As to any question about the seeming indirection in God's response, You would begin by observing that a sufficient answer may be found in the fact that God is simply responding to the exact question Enoch asked in verse 28. How is it that the heavens weep? Only after describing the tragic situation in a passionate set of verses, using the personal terms I, me, my, and mine 24 times, does God refer for the first time to the heavens, the subject of Enoch's question. At that point, significantly, God makes mention of the heavens twice in summary fashion at the end of his speech, forming the end of an inclusio that opened with Enoch's question. God's emphatic statement in verse 37, emphasizing the scope of the weeping as being the whole heavens and all the workmanship of mine hands, is repeated more succinctly in verse 40, as if to bring his answer to the original question to a definite closure and to prepare the reader for the wholehearted response of Enoch in verse 41. In addition to the dramatic narrative function served by the threefold repetition of the heavens in Enoch's question, and God's answer as described above, there may also be some currently undiscerned literary purpose behind the fact that the term the heavens is repeated seven times in the chapter as a whole in light of the significance of the number seven in the Hebrew Bible. Harold, quote, The narrative seems to want to call attention to the weeping heavens rather than the weeping God. It is as though part of the role given to the heavens is to mourn the sins and suffering of people on earth. Thus the heavens can rejoice, Psalm 96:11) at favorable situations or weep, Doctrine and Covenants 76:26) at unfortunate ones. It is further noteworthy, noteworthy that Moses 7:37 and 40 expressly intercludes all of God's creations in the weeping role, but nowhere is God expressly included, though admittedly not excluded either. End of quote. Unfortunately, this argument only holds if one excludes God a priori from his role as part of the heavens. On the other hand, if one takes seriously the idea that references to the heavens are meant to include God, it becomes apparent that that references to God's weeping are not confined to the OT1 text of Moses 7.28, but are scattered throughout the chapter. As discussed above. One must also remember that God is poetically equated with the heavens when Enoch addresses the heavens as thou speaking in that instance in terms of the unmistakably reference to God. Harrell, quote, How is this unmistakable? Why does the pronoun thou necessitate a reference to God rather than collectively to the heavens or the heavenly hosts God created, which seems more implicit in the text? The claim that the heavens equal God in Moses 7 is an inference, not an assertion made in the text itself. End of quote. Despite the prefatory mention of the heavens in OT1 and OT2, verse 29, the fact that Enoch's question itself is stated with a typically singular pronoun, how is it that thou canst weep, seeing thou art holy, and from all eternity to all eternity, and goes on in verses 30 and 31 to refer to the creation, the curtains, the bosom, and the divine attributes of God before repeating the question, how is it that thou canst weep, are all reliable indicators that Enoch is addressing God himself directly and personally. Harold, Another argument against a weeping God in Moses 7 is that it would be the only place in Latter-day Scripture that records such an act by God. Jacob 5 is sometimes cited as an example of God weeping, but Jacob 5 is a parable in which God is represented as Lord of the vineyard and his sadness for the loss of his vineyard is represented by his weeping. If one is to take the Lord's weeping literally here, one would also have to take the Lord's ignorance about what to do with his vineyard also literally, as well as his hasty resort to having it burned." Though we agree that parables are not to be taken literally in the strictest sense, we do not think the reader would be mistaken to take the weeping of the Lord of the vineyard as the author's affirmation that God, probably we think referring to the Lord Jesus Christ in this instance, is capable of deep sorrow. After all, we have a second witness in modern scripture to this idea in the Book of Mormon, when Christ wept and wept again. We take the teaching of the resurrected perfect, Jesus Christ, in 3 Nephi 12.48, as signifying to his disciples that he and his Father can be equated in every respect, quote, I would that ye should be perfect, even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect, end of quote. As to Harold's remaining observations, we must not forget that rhetorical questions have a long and distinguished history in biblical literature. Stretching back to Genesis 3.9, when God asked Adam, Where art thou? Compare Moses 4.15, 4, Where goest thou? And a strange thing for a presumably omniscient thing for a de- deity to say. But of course, God is not seeking information, but rather requesting Adam to reflect openly on his intentions in view of the fact that his feet are now pointed toward the exit of the garden. As to the Lord's so-called ignorance of what more could be done for his vineyard and his hasty resort to burn it, we should remember that the purpose of his words within the larger dialogue is not really to reveal his state of mind and intentions, but rather as a means of eliciting, eliciting a compassionate response from his servants, a tactic that succeeds when one servant replies, Spare it a little longer precisely the response the Lord had hoped for in the first place. Like similar literary devices, this teaching method involves the use of dramatic elements which draw not only the participants, but also the audience in. In summary, by admitting that the Lord can weep, we are not necessarily obliged to attribute senseless questions or callous proposals for action to him in the process. It should be remembered that Jacob 5 is, after all, as Harrow himself affirms, a parable, not necessarily a complete representation of reality in every detail. Harold. quote, When one reads through to verse 41, the overarching theme seems to be God's fiery indignation and fierce anger which is kindled against the wicked people, verse 34. The Almighty God who holds all creations in the palm of his hands, verse 36, is poised to carry out swift judgment on sinners. No wonder it is left to the heavens and God's other creations to sympathize and weep over the outpouring of God's wrath in this narrative. Any exaltation of the weeping God in Moses 7, if based on OT 2, strikes me as being unbalanced as it disregards the general arc of the narrative which points only to the commiseration of God's creatures with the suffering of the ungodly. In terms of God, Moses 7 seems to accentuate only his wrath rather than his tenderheartedness. Our answer to this argument is given in the section below. Does God express only anger and wrath in Moses 7 to the exclusion of any display of sorrow and sadness? While we do not agree with Harold's view that, quote, Moses 7 accentuates only God's wrath rather than his tenderheartedness, end of quote, we sympathize with his observation that in Latter-day Saint discourses, quote, passages emphasizing God's passability are sometimes emphasized at the exclusion of passages portraying God as vengeful, end of quote. A useful corrective to this tendency may be to compare Moses 7 to suitable Old Testament analogues. While the fusion of justice and mercy in the character of God may seem like an irreconcilable contradiction in modern thinking, ancient scripture writers had no problem in putting these seemingly opposite ideas together, often in close proximity, within a single chapter of scripture. Rather than viewing selected verses from Moses 7:28 through 41 in isolation, we will now examine the passage as a whole, Comparing it to general Old Testament model, best exemplified in two classic chapters of the Old Testament, Isaiah 1 and Deuteronomy 32, we will summarize some of the features of this model as they're portrayed in OT 1, which we believe provides a better reading of the passage than OT 2. <clears throat> By way of introduction to our reading, we observe that the text of Moses 7:28 through 41 resonates with selected themes mentioned by John Hobbins in his outline of Isaiah 1, including, quote, God's call for heaven and earth to witness his grievance, the relationship of privilege and obligation entailed by a father and his children, the actions God will take in view of the wayward and defiant state of his children, and God's proposal for a merciful resolution of their troubles. Analogues to each of these themes will be seen in the summary presented below, in our summary, we will draw liberally from discussions of Hobbins and others to demonstrate how Enoch's grand vision, like Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 1, artfully combined seem- seemingly contradictory aspects of God's nature, in other words, justice and mercy, within a single paracope. The heavens weep for the residue of the people, God's children, and Enoch's brethren. The opening verses of Moses 7.28-41 recall the opening verse of Isaiah one, 1 and Deuteronomy one, where the heavens and the earth are called upon to witness the Lord's lament. However, in the book of Moses, the heavens are not passive observers, but active participants who weep with God in his sorrow. Townsend and Harold see a sharp discontinuity between the sympathy of Enoch, the heavens and the earth, and the anger of God. However, to us, an examination of the passage as a whole, in the form it was originally dictated in OT 1, seems to exhibit continuity that steadily builds up to an almost unbearably unbearable intensity of sorrow. The weeping God of heaven leads out in a heavenly chorus that eventually comes to include all the workmanship of his hands, at which point Enoch, the protagonist of the account, also joins in with full heart and soul. In a few verses that precede Moses 7.28, we see additional support for the logic of the OT1 narrative that has God weeping and Enoch bearing record. Note the significant sequence when the angels descend out of heaven to warn the earth, followed by angels that come down out of heaven to bear testimony of the Godhead. In perfect parallel to this sequence, we are then told that the God of heaven weeps while Enoch bears record. Such references seem to be anticipated in the statement of God in Moses 6.63, All things are created and made to bear record of me. By way of contrast, the local symmetry of the two instances of warning, weeping, and witnesses witnessing is broken by the OT2 revisions, where both the weeping of God and the witnessing of Enoch are omitted. Enoch's question, how is it that thou canst weep? Enoch is dumbfounded when he sees God weep. Mirroring a pattern found elsewhere in Scripture, Enoch's initial indirect inquiry, how is it that the heavens weep, is immediately followed with a more pointed version of the question, how is it that thou canst weep? Despite the plural heavens that are mentioned in OT 1's initial description, the addressee of Enoch's question, any ambiguity about whether the thou in the question how is it that thou canst weep refers to the heavens or to God is resolved not only by the predominantly singular thou, but also by his description of his interlocutor as being not only holy from all eternity to all eternity, but also the creator of the heavens and the earth. Note also that the answer to Enoch's question comes directly from God. Since God's answer is given with no intervening explanation about his relationship to the heavens, it seems evident that the reader is meant to understand that God and the members of his heavenly retinue are perfectly conjoined as one in their sorrow, as Terrell Givens rightly observed. Moreover, would Enoch have asked why God weeps in verse 30 if he had not already borne record of God's weeping in verse 28? On the other hand, the logic of Enoch's question in verse 30 is broken by OT2's ambition of God's weeping in verse 28. The Lord's Judgment. I will send the floods upon them. Book of Moses parallels to the general model of Isaiah 1 and Deuteronomy 32 continue in this section. Having called all creation together to witness his suffering, the Lord now explains his grievance and describes the punishment for defection. Givens and Bockevoy rightly take a nuanced view that the fire of indignation, hot displeasure, and fierce anger of God be considered in the context of the larger passage. These authors appear to sense in the very passion of these words the angst of a sorrowing father who is required by justice to execute impending judgments while simultaneously taking every appropriate measure to assure merciful provisions will be extended to all who would repent. The Lord's compassion for the victims of wickedness compels them to put an end to the machinations of those who have stubbornly persisted in hating their own blood, being wholly without affection for both God and man. As Abraham Heschel expresses it with respect to Isaiah 1, quote, The destructiveness of God's power is not due to God's hostility to man, but to his concern for righteousness, to his intolerance of injustice. The human mind seems to have no sense for the true dimension of man's cruelty to man. God's anger is fierce because man's cruelty is infernal. End of quote. In marked contrast to the descriptions found in the pseudepigraphal 1st Enoch, where the wicked watchers are condemned for eternity without possibility of reprieve, the God of the Book of Moses, while condemning the sin, is moved by mercy for the sinner. He sorrows for the self-inflicted suffering of the wicked, and provides a way for their salvation by offering the gift of the Atonement of Christ, and its accompanying invitation to, quote, "...all men everywhere, to repent and be made whole." Sadly, because of the agency God irrevocably gave mankind in the beginning, he realizes that there is nothing he can do to help them unless they freely choose love over hate. The needlessness of their suffering brings God great sorrow. In all of this, the book of Moses, like Isaiah 1, 2-9, quote, echoes Deuteronomy 32, 1-35, measure for measure, end of quote. As Hobbins describes it, quote, First comes the call to heaven and earth to witness the indictment of Israel on charges of disloyalty, then the playing off of Yahweh's love for the people, the love of a father for his children against the people's insensate disobedience. The tone is one of exasperation. God's reminder to the people in Moses 7.33 that he is their father is consistent with similar descriptions in Isaiah 1 and Deuteronomy 32. The pointed emphasis on God's filial relationship to humankind is significant in light of Berge's observation that such father-son imagery is rare in the prophets and elsewhere in the Hebrew scriptures. According to Heschel, Isaiah, quote, pleads with us to understand the plight of a father whom his children have abandoned, end of quote. Importantly, the defiant defection of the people does not lessen God's love, nor does it slacken his patient, painstaking effort to bring them to their senses. As Heschel observes, quote, There is sorrow in God's anger. It is an instrument of purification, and its exercise will not last forever. End of quote. Note that OT2 inexplicably substitutes the more general term God for the OT1's use of the term Father, thus diminishing the long series of poignant God as Father parallels between Moses 7 and Isaiah and Deuteronomy. The Lord's Lament Misery shall be their doom. Further demonstrating that God's foremost concern is over the misery of his children, he quickly abandons the theme of judgment and launches into a stanza of lament. Hobbins aptly captures the pathos of the corresponding passage in Isaiah 1 as follows, The nation's malaise is described as though the nation were an injured and uncared-for body, with the implication that, if not for estrangement, it would be cared for by the one committed to do so. The tone is accusatory and plaintive at the same time a return to the text's emotional point of departure. End of quote. The passage ends poignantly with God's recital of the tragic fate of Israel's children, followed by a rhetorical question. Quote, Behold, their sins shall be on the heads of their fathers. Satan shall be their father, and misery shall be their doom. And the whole heaven shall weep over them, even all the workmanship of mine hands. Wherefore should not the heavens weep, seeing these shall suffer. The tone of God's question leave no doubt about his participation with the rest of the heavenly host in their weeping, an interpretation that reinforces God's previously, previous metonymic identification with the heavens in the OT1 manuscript of Moses 728, in contrast to the version in OT2. The Lord's mercy, inasmuch as they will repent. Describing the next part of the general pattern of Isaiah 1, Hobbins write, writes, quote, Yahweh's decision not to blot the people out entirely, despite the defection, is then recounted. Similarly, in Moses 7:38 and 39, God explains that quote, His chosen will suffer for the sins of the penitent and release them from prison, quote, inasmuch as they will repent. End of quote. Enoch's question about the weeping of the heavens in verse 29 had formed the opening of a powerful inclusio, whose closing bookend is finally found in verse 40. Having concluded his answer to Enoch, God now reiterates his solidarity with the sorrowing of the heavens. Wherefore, for this, shall the heavens weep? While in eloquent brevity he acknowledges that the overflow of the bitter cup of weeping now also extends to include the earth and its creatures. Yea, and all the workmanship of my hands. Enoch weeps, and his heart swells wide as eternity. Only now does the realization of the depth of God's empathy finally draw out Enoch's full response as his, quote, heart swelled wide as eternity. In other words, as wide as God's heart. Now Enoch unites his own voice with the heavenly chorus of weeping in a grand finale. Note that in the OT2 revision of Moses 728, in contrast to the OT1 manuscript of the Book of Moses, Enoch weeps prematurely, thus diffusing the deliberate forestalling of the dramatic moment of Enoch's sympathetic resonance with the heavens until after the conclusion, of God's poignant speech. With specific respect to the culminating statement at the end of God's Lament in Moses 7.40 Wherefore for this shall the heavens weep, yea, and all the workmanship of mine hands. Is there a more plausible explanation for the literary function of this verse than as a declaration of God's absolute solidarity with and direct participation in the distress of all creation? And by way of analog to Psalm 96 where all celebrate but primacy is given appropriately to humankind, so also, after the mourning of all, then and not before, is Enoch's weeping expected to burst forth as the heart-wrenching finale of the weeping chorus of the universe. Beyond the beautiful literary unity and striking echoes of the narrative structure in the two notable Old Testament exemplars, what do we find of interest in the passage? Importantly, it is evident to us that in every significant divergence, the OT1 reading is superior to its equivalent in OT2. That said, even if one were to substitute the OT2 revisions for the words of the original dictation in OT1, the result would not efface the overwhelming witness that the depth of God's love is the central theme of the chapter, where, quote, justice, love, and mercy meet in harmony divine, end of quote. Is it reasonable to trust OT2 more than OT1? Before continuing to our conclusions for this section, a final issue should be considered with respect to the revision of Moses 7.28. Is it reasonable to trust OT2 more than OT1? Before attempting an answer to this question, it's important to know something about how the translation process seems to have differed for the longer editions to the book of Moses, most notably Moses 1, 6, and 7, when compared to the more focused revisions to the specific King James Bible verses. With respect to the translation process, most scholars agree that the prophet's Bible translation in general, and the book of Moses in particular, is not a homogeneous production. Rather, it is composite in structure and eclectic in its manner of translation. For example, the vision of Moses, Moses 1, and the story of Enoch, Moses 6 and 7, contain long, revealed sections that, although using King James Bible language, have little or no direct relationship to the Genesis narrative. However, other chapters are more in the line of clarifying commentary that takes the text of the King James Bible as its starting point, incorporating new elements based on Joseph Smith's prophetic inspiration and understanding. For example, evidence from a study by Kent Jackson and Peter Jasinski of two New Testament passages that were translated twice indicates that in this particular instance, the JST quote, "...is not being revealed word for word." but largely depends upon Joseph Smith's varying responses to the same difficulties in the text," end of quote. Importantly, according to Philip Barlow, the most common changes in the JST seem generally to have been of such a nature, quote, grammatical improvements, technical clarifications, and modernization of terms, end of quote. With specific reference, to large biblical editions of the Book of Moses, we look at the original dictation in Old Testament Manuscript 1 as being closer to a word-for-word revealed text than to anything else. In this general respect, a predominantly revelatory character of these editions appears to have been, as Royal Scousen concluded, quote, much like the Book of Mormon, end of quote. In accepting the hypothesis that the translation process for longer portions of the Book of Moses resembled the process of Book of Mormon translation more than anything else, though perhaps not relying so much on physical instruments and in translation, we tend to view later revisions to the original dictation with greater skepticism than we would have otherwise done. With respect to Royal Skousen's careful examination of difficult readings and conjectural emendations made by scribes and editors, and doubtless sometimes by Joseph Smith himself, in the source manuscripts of the Book of Mormon, Skousen has, quote, determined that a fair number were likely, were unlikely or unnecessary, end of quote. Besides specific arguments related to the Prophets' revelations and translations, the general literature is full of examples of scribes who made manuscripts worse through their unintentional or intentional corrections. In light of the general considerations about differences in translation process discussed above, combined with specific indications that later revisions sometimes seem to run roughshod over important literary features of the original dictation, We take the general position that the original dictation of Moses 7, after standardization of the English and correction of errors of dictation and transcription, should take priority over later revisions, unless there are good arguments to the contrary. Consistent with this position, and the literary considerations discussed above, we currently take the canonical version of Moses 7.28, which follows the earliest manuscript by describing the God of heaven, rather than Enoch as the one who weeps, to be the best reading of the verse until and unless better arguments from particular OT2 or later readings are produced. That said, we respectfully acknowledge that the Book of Moses scholar, Kent B. Jackson, takes a different approach to this question. Jackson finds it unlikely that even small changes were due to deliberate or inadvertent scribal errors, and notes that the prophet himself, quote, signed off on the text as we have it in the final manuscript, and called it finished. Townsend and Harold take a similar view, according more legitimacy to later revisions than to the earliest dictation. Conclusions from the discussion of the textual history of Moses 7.28 In summary, any criticism of Gibbon's brief flyover of the textual history of the version in question should take into account the fact that the revisions of Moses 7.28 do not seem to be as crucial for his nor our reading of the rest of the chapter as they seem to Townsend. Of course, the most general lesson of the discussion is that, regardless of one's interpretation of the verse, Townsend is certainly correct that incorporating textual history as part of standard research methodology is a crucial requirement for scholars of Latter-day Saint history and scripture. Indeed, the example of Moses 7.28 is a fitting illustration of the importance of text criticism as a foundation to subsequent exegesis. It is evident that our own interpretation of the scriptural passage as well as the arguments of Townsend and Terrell, are predicated, at least to some extent, on whether one sees OT1 or OT2 as the best reading of the pericope. 3. The original manuscripts of the Book of Moses indicate that Mahuja and Mahijah are separate names. Another observation discussed by Townsend has to do with two similar names that appear in the Book of Moses, Mahijah and Mahuja. Mahija appears as a personal name, while Mahuja is typically read only as a place name, though it could be a personal name. On pages 82 and 83, Townsend raises the question as to whether the appearance of these two similar names in the Book of Moses is due to a possible misreading of Emma Smith's handwriting on the manuscript of Moses 640, based on details of her writing elsewhere in the manuscript. This example highlights the importance of the role that handwriting sometimes can play in text-critical analysis. In the three sections that follow, we will evaluate Townsend's analysis of instances of Emma's handwriting for the letters J, I, and U. Failing to find strong support for Townsend's argument in these instances, we also consider the implications of an instance of a dot that appears over what we take to be the I of Mahija, but what Townsend presumes to be the U of Mahuja. After summarizing the evidence about Emma's handwriting, We'll examine the handwriting of Sidney Rigdon and John Whitmer for the name Mahuja. Evaluating Townsend's Analysis of the Letter J In his article, Townsend first focuses on the letter J. Quote, One of the first letters to analyze is M as J. There are only four examples of J in her writing in OT1, and two of them begin with a smooth curve up to the top of the J, the other two, of which Mahaja is 1, Start with a smooth curve, hook once, and then curve up again to the top of the J. This irregular example is only made more difficult by the fact that the extant examples are 50-50, highlighting how the possibility of that first hook in the J in Mahija is not going to help in deciding whether or not the vowel is an I or a U. End of quote from Townsend. As a slight correction to Townsend's count, see bolded text to the quotation above, we note that there are actually five, not four, total examples of the lowercase j in Emma's handwriting in OT1 if the j in Mahijah is included. However, as Townsend correctly argued, the j in Mahijah is disputed and therefore can't be used as evidence, leaving only four j's that can be analyzed for comparison. The j in the word justify, and in one instance of journeyed on page 12, or both preceded by the upward hook mentioned by Townsend. By way of contrast, neither the J in the other instance of journeyed on page 12 or journeyed on page 13 have the preceding upward hook. Unfortunately, the correction in the count described above does not shed any new light on our analysis. Because we cannot count the J as in Mahija. Townsend's conclusion that the usage of a preceding hook occurs 50% of the time in the additional examples of J still holds. Thus, an analysis based on this letter alone won't actually help in deciding whether or not the vowel preceding the J in Mahijah is an I or a U. Evaluating Townsend's Analysis of the Letter I According to Townsend, when Emma wrote the letter U, her form was the same as her writing two I's consecutively, although the second part of the letter was often weak and not written as high as the first. End of quote from Townsend. With this in mind, he proposes that the slight upstroke between the i and the j in Mahajja might actually be a shortened second upstroke of a u. To support this possibility, he emphasizes the apparent irregularity of the deviation between the i and the j in Mahajja. In all of the examples of Emma's eyes, except the one found in Mahajja, the final curve of the downward stroke from the i to the new letter is smooth, with no hesitation or stopping the I in Mahajah is the only example that documents a deviation from her typical penmanship. End of quote from Townsend. Contrary to Townsend's claim, the I in Mahajah is not the only deviant I in Emma's writing in OT1. Several of Emma's I's in OT1 have slight protrusions in various directions that are comparable to the example in Mahajah. For example, the I in the word there, which is only two lines directly above the name Mahajah, has an unusual backstroke that makes it look more like an S than an I. While this deviation protrudes in a different direction, it is arguably just as pronounced, if not more so, than the slight upward stroke between the I and the J in Mahija. More immediately relevant is an analogous upstroke found in the first instance of the word wife in a letter Emma wrote to Joseph Smith in 1839. Just as found in Mahijah there is an upstroke between the I and the next letter, in this case an F, and the substroke appears to be even closer, relatively speaking, to the top of the eye than the example in Mahija. Yet, despite being a visually better candidate for an incomplete U, the deviation in wife clearly isn't a mistakenly dotted U. Another thing to consider, separate from the form of the eye, is that many of Emma's eyes have significant changes in ink flow near the same approximate location of the deviation in Mahijah. In nine examples, the ink flow disappears altogether. In at least a dozen others, there is a discernible difference in ink flow. And in several instances, it appears that Emma may have reapplied the upstroke into the next letter, causing another type of minor deviation, although none of these are as pronounced as the deviation in Mahajja. Thus, it can't be ruled out that the oddity in Mahajja might be due to some sort of disruption in ink flow, perhaps causing Emma to start again at the bottom and write or rewrite an upstroke that, for whatever reason, was never completed. At the very least, the variations in ink flow demonstrate another type of inconsistency between Emma's eyes and the letters that follow. All of this suggests that the anomaly between the I and the J in Mahija may not be as significant as Townsend implies. As he and himself later points out, Emma made various types of errors and appears to have been writing quickly, like the upstroke in Emma's transcription of wife, the irregularity in Mahija could easily be one of the many minor deviations in Emma's writing, and nothing more than a sign of her haste. Evaluating Townsend's analysis of the letter U. Not only does Townsend overstate the, inconsist- overstate the consistency in Emma's instances of the letter I, but he also overstates the similarity between the deviation in Mahija and examples of what he describes as weak, second upstrokes of the letter U in Emma's handwriting. Neither of the instances that he points to, mouth or mouths, are actually very similar to the example in Mahaja. The second upstroke in these U's are much closer in height to the top of the first upstroke than is the deviation in Mahaja, and they cover more horizontal distance as well. Though Townsend disagrees with their analysis, he has not provided any measurements of his own in support of his arguments. As evidence for our point, we've included successive images of each ward and made them proportionally accurate as we could. A horizontal line has been placed at the top of each of the second upstrokes to demonstrate the comparative differences in height relative to the top of the first upstroke. The example in Mahaja strikes us as being significantly smaller than the U in both mouth and mouth. Furthermore, our survey of each instance of the letter U in Emma's writing leads us to conclude that none of the second upstrokes in any of them are nearly as slight as the upstroke between the I and the J in Mahija. That being the case, Townsend's conjecture on this point is not well supported. It is certainly not impossible that the de- deviation in Mahija could be a shortened upstroke of a U, but in our view, the lack of any other truly comparable examples makes the possibility quite remote a dot of an eye over Mahija versus a stray mark over the U of Mahuja. Townsend's hypothesis faced an additional challenge. He must account for the extra dot above the first upstroke of what we take to be the i of Mahija, but what he proposes may be the U of Mahuja. To explain this error, he points to evidence from elsewhere that Emma was in a hurry, such as the crosses on T's that span more than one letter, or to a mistaken cross on the letter L in the word councils, making it look instead like councils. He then postulates, quote, Punctuation, Emma added for the I in Mahijah could have been hastily added as a mistake as she added the dot for the J. And a weak U would have looked like an I next to a J that needed its dot. End of quote from Townsend. Of course, this supposition is not impossible, and Emma does indeed seem to have been writing quickly. Moreover, in our analysis, we actually found an instance where an accidental dot appears over the first upstroke of a U of the word us on page 13 of OT1. This provides evidence for Townsend's hypothesis that Emma may have put an erroneous dot over a U in Mahuja. However, this accidental dot may be at least partially due to the fact that a very similar-looking word, is, is written directly above us. Their close proximity and visual similarity may have provided the m- more impetus than normal for Emma to add the dot either immediately or after a quick scan for any missing punctuation. Importantly, our analysis detected no other substantial or clearly discernible ink dots above any of the precisely 100 instances of the letter u, no matter the height of its second upstroke <clears throat> in Emma's handwriting in OT1. Thus, while an erroneous ink dot can't be completely ruled out, the actual probability of this happening, a likelihood of only 1 in 100 in this text, is not very encouraging for Townsend's thesis. To us, it seems more reasonable in this instance to believe that we are looking at a dotted I rather than an unusually written and then mistakenly dotted U. Summary of evidence bearing on whether Emma wrote Mahija or Mahuja. In summary, there are several reasons we are convinced that Emma wrote Mahaja rather than Mahuja. 1. The irregular upstroke between the I and the J in Mahaja seems too truncated to be likely to be the second upstroke of a U. No examples of the letter U manifest anything comparably slight in OT1. 2. The probability of Emma placing an erroneous dot over a U is very low. By our count, only 1 in 100 examples of the letter U, no matter, how, no matter the height of the second upstroke, have an erroneous dot over them in OT1. 3. There are several reasonable alternative examples for the deviation in mahija, MS Haste, or rewrite of a failed upstroke, or hesitating about whether or not to include or omit an additional upstroke before the J, or simply a minor variation like many others, including the similar example in wife, even though it comes from a different sample of her writing. Additionally, it should be noted that John Whitmer transcribed Emma's version of Moses 640 into two copies of the manuscript, his personal copy in OT2, and in both cases wrote Mahijah. Also, Jackson notes that, quote, Edward Partridge made a copy of the manuscript and he transcribed it Mahijah as well. Thus, for what it's worth, their individual assessments are in agreement with our analysis above. A related note, the Mahujahs of Sidney Rigdon and John Whitmer. For completeness sake, we observe that the textual history of the name Mahuja is somewhat more complicated than that of Mahija. When Joseph Smith dictated the name Mahuja in Moses 7-2, Sidney Rigdon recorded the name as he heard it. However, when John Whitmer copied OT-1 onto his private copy, he mistakenly wrote Mahija at Moses 7-2, having just copied Mahija a few pages earlier. When Whitmer copied the previously dictated portion of the Book of Moses into OT 2, he made the same mistake. But afterward, he or someone else caught the error and corrected it to Mahuja. Jackson states, When Edward Partridge copied Moses 7.2 from OT 1, he got it right. Mahuja. Although detailed historical and textual analysis does not inspire confidence in Townsend's conjecture that the name in Emma's hands should be read Mahuja, He is certainly correct to emphasize that more careful attention to original manuscripts and textual changes is warranted. Even if Townsend's theory regarding the spelling of Mahijah proves to be a less likely reading of the text, It is nevertheless a possibility that shouldn't be completely dismissed. Conclusions This response is only a slim sampling of the many issues and questions that are raised in Colby Townsend's thoughtful article. We urge readers to look at the other examples he discusses, as well as at the responses that his essay is sure to raise. Though we may differ on some issues, we are grateful for the insights and new discoveries that Townsend brings to the subjects he approaches, we feel a kinship in our mutual interest for scripture scholarship that is couched in a search for truth. Though, like the rest of us, Townsend does not have answers for all the issues he raises, he makes intelligent observations, raises good questions, and rightly highlights the importance of textual criticism, a key and often foundational aspect of Latter-day Saint scholarship that indeed should not be neglected. In part two of this response, we will continue the discussion of the Book of Moses names Mahuja and Mahijah, and the similar names Mahujael in Genesis 4 to 8, 418, and Mahawe in the Prosodepigraphal Book of Giants. Latter-day Saint scholars, following the lead of Nehu Nibley, have argued that the seeming resemblance between the Book of Moses and the Book of Giants names constitutes strong evidence of the antiquity of the Book of Moses. In light of new evidence that Townsend has brought to bear on the issue, The discussion in Part 2 will highlight the complexities of this argument and the different views that scholars hold about the relationships among these names. This has been a recording of Textual Criticism in the Book of Moses, a response to Colby Townsend's Returning to the Sources, Part 1 of 2, by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw and Ryan Dolly. Published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 40, 2020, read by Jeffrey M. Bradshaw. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and it is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.